Hey guys, Mike Gillis here. Just a couple quick words before we get started. If you like our show and want to help raise our profile, the easiest way to do that is to rate and review us on iTunes and the Stitcher radio app. It only takes 30 seconds to do and puts our show in the much-coveted listener recommendation lists. And even if you don't use Stitcher or iTunes, please just share our show with a friend. Post us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+. Please let people know about us. But this month... This month, we are tackling a classic film franchise, Planet of the Apes. And you shouldn't be surprised if we spoil the fuck out of these movies. We talk about endings, we talk about plot twists, and we reveal stuff that you'd know already if you'd just seen the fucking movie that came out over 40 years ago. I mean, come on. These movies came out during the Johnson and Nixon administration, for crying out loud. And your life won't be ruined if you hear a spoiler, so please, don't be a giant baby about it. However, if you walk away from this panel wanting more of Planet of the Apes, I've got you some recommendations. Obviously, the original five films are available on DVD and Blu-ray, but sadly not Netflix streaming. The original movie is a classic and my favorite film of all time. And if because of this episode just one person sees it for the first time, I think I've done my job. But if those movies still aren't enough, I'd like to recommend some comics and books. First, The Conspiracy of the Planet of the Apes. That's a 2011 illustrated novel by Andrew Gaska that has some amazing painted art throughout and a gorgeous cover by comic book legend Jim Steranko. It's basically the first movie and part of the second one through the point of view of other characters like Astronaut Landon, Dr. Milo, and others. In the comics world, Boom Studios also recently finished up a great run of Apes comic books. They did a Planet of the Apes ongoing series that takes place a few hundred years before the first movie and touches on all the same themes of war and racism. It was written by Daryl Gregory, and you can find it in five collected editions. Boom also released two Apes miniseries by the husband and wife team of Corinna Becco and Gabriel Hardman, Betrayal of the Planet of the Apes and Exile on the Planet of the Apes, which take place about 20 years before the original film. They're followed then by a 12-issue ongoing series called Planet of the Apes Cataclysm, which is all collected and available. This is seriously top-notch stuff, and probably my favorite Apes Expanded Universe stuff of all time. Now, with that out of the way, let's get to the panel. I will see you on the other side. I don't remember the first time I encountered the Planet of the Apes. I'm not sure what I saw first as a child, one of the semi-annual cable marathons of the five Apes movies, or the parodied ending of Mel Brooks' Spaceballs, but whatever it was, its impact lasts with me to this day. Even for most people who've never seen any of the movies, there is something immediately recognizable about them. Anyone who sees more than a few seconds of leather-clad gorillas with rifles on horseback chasing Charlton Heston in a loincloth will know exactly what they're watching. Planet of the Apes exists at an odd intersection of our popular culture. It's a universally recognized franchise, and aside from Soylent Green, probably the most spoiled movie of all time. That iconic image of an emotionally broken Colonel Taylor cursing humanity's self-destruction in the shadow of the Statue of Liberty remains one of the most referenced and spoofed moments in film history. But despite this cultural ubiquity, Planet of the Apes as a film and as a franchise 
remains one of the most underwatched and underrated films among both movie fans and hardcore consumers of science fiction. Planet of the Apes was born out of a 1963 novel by French novelist Pierre Boulle, most famous as the author of Bridge on the River Kwai. La Planète des Songes, or The Monkey Planet, became the inspiration for a 1968 film loosely based on it starring Charlton Heston, directed by Frank Schaffner, and with a screenplay by The Twilight Zone's Rod Serling. I am not shy about letting people know that it's my favorite film franchise of all time. It's got time travel, post-apocalyptic hillscapes, guerrilla armies hunting savage mute humans for sport, gunfights, chases, telepathic mutants, Charlton Heston screaming, debates on the nature of human rights, racism, slavery, the self-destructive nature of the human race, war, theocracy, freedom of speech, the right to be different or question the society we've been born into, and of course, Ricardo Montalban. It was like an amalgamation of all the things that make me happy as both an adult and as a six-year-old. Planet of the Apes has since spawned four movie sequels, two reboot films, a short-lived television series, an animated series, and comic books from at least five different publishers. So let's raise a glass of Grape Juice Plus, let us declare the glory of the bomb and the holy fallout, because this month we're talking about my favorite science fiction franchise, The Planet of the Apes. Let's introduce our panel. First, a returning panelist, Star Wars aficionado and the composer of the Radio vs. the Martians opening theme music, Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Welcome back to the show, Todd. Hi, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. And joining us for the first time is Greg Hatcher, who writes a weekly pop culture and comic book column for Comic Book Resources' Comics Should Be Good blog. He's also an author who writes new pulp adventure stories for the publisher Airstrip 27. He's got a novel published coming out next year called Beach Blanket Armageddon. Greg, welcome to Radio vs. the Martians. Thanks very much. And finally, the Inspector Culp to my Governor Breck, the Virgil to my Caesar, <laughs> Casey Doran. Welcome back, Casey. Oh, thanks, Mike. Always a pleasure. So, Greg, I want to start with you. I know you to be a fellow diehard fan of the Apes franchise, and I also want to hear from everyone else as well. Greg, how would you describe the Planet of the Apes to someone who's never actually seen it before? Well, it would depend on who I was talking to. When I was talking to my young authors students about it at school, I used it as an example of what we used to see a lot of in the late 60s and early 70s, which was social science fiction. In other words, the mechanisms and the nuts and bolts science were not terribly important to the story. And we saw a lot of that in movies like The Omega Man and Soylent Green. And they were very socially conscious science fiction stories. And Planet of the Apes hit that sweet spot between, you know, being socially relevant and interesting to adults and full of this amazing balls out adrenaline fueled adventure for kids. It just it had something for everybody. When I was a kid, I just thought it was awesome. When I was an adult, I discovered that it was also sort of elegant. Especially the first one is just thematically, for a writer, an extraordinary piece. You start with Taylor, who hates humans so much that he flees into deep space, and he's in an environment suddenly where he has to defend all of humanity. He has to be humanity's spokesman. And then, at the end of the movie, he finds out, no, the apes were right. Men really do kind of suck. <laughs> and that was the beautiful twist of it. In preparation for this, I went back and looked at the movies again, and I'm awestruck by how much actual capital A art is happening from a process that if you know anything about the way these movies were made, it was very much decisions by committee. It was very much decisions by budget and rewrites for this and that and the other. Nobody could crack Bull's novel as a screenplay, as a property. It had been floating around the studio for a couple of years because they kept trying to do the book. And then oh, I forget, it's in one of the documentaries. Somebody said, let's do it like a Western. Let's put them on horses, we'll put them in a village, and we'll shoot it on the back lot. And that actually really helped the story a lot. 
And if you look at the history of the movies from that point onward, a lot of decisions that were made on budgetary basis, you know, just reusing old sets and condensing stories down and making things smaller and more character focused and trying to avoid doing a lot of expensive makeups really helped focus the actual story. But I've discovered, especially working as a writer myself, a lot of times budgetary things force you to be smarter. And I think that happened a lot in the five movies. Basically, I would just describe that it's an awesome sci-fi movie where an astronaut lands on a planet that is overrun with intelligent apes. And he's got to survive and figure out what's going on there. But like what he said is, it's got, I think, all the makings of schlock sci-fi. I mean, when you describe it that way, it sounds totally campy. But when you watch it, it, I think you said it's elegant, and it really is. It's a beautifully shot movie. I don't think there's a wasted scene in the film. Casey? I don't know. I'm the one probably coming to this with the least amount of affection or nostalgia for the whole thing. Probably saw the Simpsons parody before I saw the first movie. I think it actually improves the flavor of watching it after having Phil Hartman playing Troy McClure as Taylor in Planet of the Apes the musical. Beyond that, how I'd describe it for someone, it's a post-apocalyptic movie. And I suppose it's an exploration of humanity in the same way that all post-apocalyptic movies are, which is when you burn down civilization and social contracts between people, what's left over? I guess I would describe it as a kind of a Twilight Zone episode writ large. It does make sense. I mean, the screenplay was Rod Serling. Rod Serling came up with the famous ending where Colonel Taylor looks up and realizes that he's not on another planet, but is in fact on planet Earth. And that even though he's gained a new sympathy for human beings... His original idea was that human beings were worthless and self-destructive and stupid was true. But I want to sort of take us back before what we're talking about, seeing it as an adult and get back to seeing it as a child. Todd, I want to start with you. What was the first time you encountered the franchise or one of the movies? And what did you first make of it? I remember the television show before seeing the movies, really loving that. And I also remember magazines that we used to get at the grocery store. Uh, I don't even remember what they were, if it was like 16 Magazine or what we'd get, but, you know, they'd have a lot of stuff for movies, and there was always Planet of the Apes stuff on there. There was always humans in the cart, you know, arms and legs sticking out and <laughs> holding onto the bars. <laughs> and uh, there's always the, you know, the gorillas on the horseback, like you mentioned before, with the rifles. And just these really iconic, and for a kid, kind of disturbing imagery, because, you know, especially the gorillas looked menacing, but also so real. You know, that excellent makeup. Cooper, I think, did that. So that was my first experience with it, and I, I brought... My Dr. Zayas piggy bank. Yes. My sister had that before I was born. I think she got that maybe right when I was coming along in 74 or so. And I always had a Mickey Mouse piggy bank. I was always so jealous of her Dr. Zayas piggy bank, which I now own. So how about that? So it was always kind of a part of, you know, my really early childhood. It was around. You had the show. There was stuff in magazines. You'd see toys. My cousin who was four years older would have some of the dolls and things like that, you know. So I was very intrigued by it. And I couldn't wait to see the movie. So, Greg? Well, I'm going to be showing my age here because I was one of the kids that first saw it on CBS's 1973 airing of the movie of the week. Oh. So I got caught in, I guess you'd call like the second wave of apes fandom when suddenly it appeared on television and a lot of people that never got to see it in the theater suddenly saw it on television for the first time. So for me, the ending was not spoiled. And it just blew me out of my chair. I couldn't believe it. I was 11, 12 years old at the time. And CBS showed Planet of the Apes. And then a couple of months later, they showed Beneath the Planet of the Apes. And shortly after that, I had a birthday. And I was gifted with a $5 gift certificate to Dalton's Bookstore. And 
I grew up in kind of a repressive household. My mother was a, a raving paranoid about letting us go out of the house. And this was in an age when there were no such things as there was no cable, there was no home video, there was barely video games. It was like Pong. So my gateway to essentially nerd culture was always novelization paperbacks and comics and tie-in products like that. So I took my little $5 gift certificate to Dalton's and they had a little apes display of paperbacks up. And I snatched up all the books, all five books, right then and there. Because you could do that on $5 back when, you know, I was a youth, when dinosaurs walked the earth. And so for me, the gateway was really the novels. Then the TV series started and it tanked, but I watched it devotedly every episode. I bought the tie-in books. I bought the Marvel comics. And I still kind of do that. I keep up with apes comics and apes novels. There's a new one just out by a guy named Greg Keyes called Firestorm that's tying into the new Dawn of the Planet of the Apes movie that I just reviewed in the column. It just became one of those nerd things that I kind of keep in touch with. But it hit me really hard when I was 11. And the things that hit you at that age just stick with you, I think. Yeah, I think for me, it was television marathons of the movies that I'd seen bits and pieces of them in childhood, but probably hadn't seen a movie from the beginning until the end until much later. So I was aware of the images and I remember seeing the end of Spaceballs. I remember seeing parodies in other TV shows and it was immediately recognizable as that's a parody of Planet of the Apes because nothing else looks like that. And it was about the time that I graduated from high school that they replayed the movies again on HBO. I think it was every Sunday they would play a new movie in the series. And I started rewatching them as an adult. And I realized that there was something much more to these movies than just simple adventure stories about a guy running away from gorillas. Because that's what I thought they were for a long time. And I realized that they were saying something. One of the things I really want to talk about is that Planet of the Apes is not optimistic science fiction. It came out at about the same time as Star Trek was in its second season. And I've come to think of the Planet of the Apes franchise as the anti-Star Trek. Star Trek was a show about how sometime in the future we're going to be able to move past poverty and war and create this amazing technology and be able to explore the stars together. There was a sense of optimism. And it was giving you the idea that someday we're going to move past this stuff. The Planet of the Apes doesn't say that at all. It tends to say the opposite. I'm going to go ahead and spoil the movie for everybody and say this is a movie, like you said, Greg, about a guy who goes into space because he hates the world. He thinks humanity is stupid and self-destructive. He lands on a future Earth where everything he thought about us is totally validated. We blew ourselves up. As he said, you maniacs, you blew it up. Damn you all to hell. <laughs> but he also said there was plenty of lovemaking. <laughs> Plenty of love, but no love. That's right. I think that this is a movie about that question about whether humanity can move past the self-destructive flaws. Racism, violence, dehumanizing other groups of people, fear of the other, and this ongoing cycle of ugliness and violence. If we want to survive as a species, you know, we're going to have to move past this. And Planet of the Apes over and over again says that maybe we can't. I don't know. As it happens, I know a lot about Star Trek, too. I just accumulate stuff like that. My wife is the one that knows practical things. <laughs> I would take exception to your characterization of both of them because I think they're flip sides of the same coin. They both have the same theme, which is we must be better. We have to be better than we are. Where we are now is not going to work. We must be better. Star Trek's approach was to say, if we're better, it's going to look like this. It's going to be great. So come on, be better. 
Planet of the Apes' approach is cautionary. It's we have to be better or we are ruined. We will be beasts. The through line for Planet of the Apes is, for me, it's always at the end of the first movie, it's beware the beast man. If you look at the movies all the way through, even though a lot of times there's gorillas shooting at people and stuff, the villain of the piece is always man. It's man's bestial tendencies. It's the worst part of him. That moves further and further to the front as you progress through the five movies. In the first movie, it's the twist ending. In the second movie, it's the paranoiac mutants living underground. In the third movie and fourth movie, it's the human government persecuting the poor apes. And then in the final movie, it's the warlike mutants again. The through line is always about, don't do this. Don't be this. This is where we're going. You must fight this in yourself. The conflict is externalized, but the idea is always about giving in to the worst part of yourself. There is really, especially when you reach like the third movie, there is a not-so-veiled undertone about race relations in it. The whole story is about man, and the relationship between apes and man is that man came from apes, right? These movies are an inversion on that principle. These apes that are here that are the dominant in the society, well, they came from man at one point, and that's controversial. But as you move further along, especially when you move to the fourth movie, they're literally like, oh, well, they're slaves. They need to be equal. The apes are being used as chattel slavery, essentially. The message behind it becomes so clear that it's just hitting you over the head with it. That's when I think the storytelling gets not only inane, but very inelegant. Well, I think there's definitely an existential bent to Planet of the Apes that I'm sure comes from the original novel. And Serling, I'm sure, helped further that. But I agree with Casey to an extent that I think that there's a quest to be didactic. And at times it is heavy-handed, that's for sure. It's, it's never subtle, really, with the Planet of the Apes movies. But I think that desire to teach us, to show us something with those movies, prevents sort of the bleak quality from really coming through the screen as often as it should, perhaps. I think, to me, the only time that I really, truly feel that sort of depressing sense of that no hope that this really sucks is when Baby Ape in Escape is shot. Yeah, right. That's like, yeah, it's like, oh, man. Then they turn around and you see that he's just on Fantasy Island. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) I got to tell you, that was what I saw on TV. And I think I'd bought the book, but I hadn't got to it yet. And that ending just... I'm telling you, when you're 12 and it comes as a surprise, that just, that one hurts. Right. It's like, they shot a baby. Yeah, the guy (laughs) from Young and the Restless killed the baby. (laughs) That's what's so interesting about it is that movie, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, is such a bizarre one because it starts as one movie and ends as a completely different one. A movie that begins as sort of a fish-out-of-water light comedy about Cornelius and Zira, the ape scientists from the first two movies, getting shot into the present day and escaping the destruction at the end of the second movie. Them, oh, hey, look, they've got bubble baths, and it's interesting. Look, Zira's drinking wine for the first time. And then it turns into a movie about them being gunned down by a scientist who wants to save the world from the future they come a from. A German scientist, yeah. nonetheless. <laughs> A German scientist that's very concerned about eugenics. That's that's not, you know, it's a little on the nose. (laughs) (laughs) That's one of the things that really strikes me about the series. The series is incredibly dark and weird for G-rated movies. There's a scene in the second movie where telepathic humans in the ruins of New York are trying to stop the advancing guerrilla army. So they project this image of bleeding, crucified, upside down gorillas 
screaming and begging for death while the statue of the lawgiver looms over them. And the lawgiver, by the way, is sort of the Jesus figure of the ape religion. And the statue bleeds and then falls into an explosion of flame. (laughs) I don't see that happening in any other G-rated movies nowadays. (laughs) That's not even the creepiest one. The creepiest moment in that movie is when the telepathic mutants are commanding the astronaut Brent to attack the feral human girl Nova. And it starts as a rape. He starts yeah. by kissing her and groping her. And then he shoves her into the fountain and tries to... It's, it's just awful. It's pretty brutal. <laughs> uh, the fountain scene is definitely brutal. Her first reaction, she doesn't understand that he's been forced to do that. And she just cringes back and pulls to the other side of the room because to her, this guy just attacked her out of nowhere. And that's... I don't know, not to beat the theme to death, but that was literally playing out. How do you beat humans? You make them give in to their worst feral impulses. You make them act awful. These mutants have these telepathic powers and think they're so much better than everyone else because they don't get hands-on when they (laughs) brutalize people that they basically use telepathic powers to force them to do it to each other because they're so civilized. Was there an allegory there to the conflict between the the United States and the Soviet Union there? Because they're saying, well, we're so great because we don't directly intervene. And all I could think of when I was thinking of that is, well, they just make proxy wars. They're the masters of an empire, and they get to feel satisfied that the people that aren't them are the ones fighting the wars for them. There's that, but you have to remember the context for this. And I don't mean to play the old man card, but I was there, and this was everywhere was the two overriding psychic pressure points for America in that era were the Vietnam War and the uprise of student protest. There's student protest. There's students <laughs> protesting in this movie exactly. against, against violence, right? And the thing that kept pundits of the time, all the Sunday morning political guys were all talking about this war was playing out on television and it was freaking America out because we actually saw for the first time what we sent our soldiers off to do. News was not as managed then as it was today and people were just horrified and there was a lot of think pieces being written about, you know, we're safe over here but we're seeing it all on television in Southeast Asia like it's a show. We're remote from it. Nobody, you know, students were yelling in the street about, you don't understand, we're killing babies. The idea of supporting our troops was just not in the public consciousness then. And I think that's where a lot of this snooty, remote, we're militaristic, we worship the bomb, we watch our enemies die on TV. They actually do that in Beneath the Planet of the Apes. There's this telepathic projection thing going on in their council chamber all the time. And I think that's the allegory. I think that's what they were reaching for. Hmm. They probably stumbled across the Cold War thing or they were thinking about it. It's hard to tell. The guy that wrote the movies, Paul Dane, he's the guy that constructed the mythology, mostly. And I think it must have been on his mind a lot because he kept going there. There's a lot of Vietnam. There's a lot of bad government, evil government, repressive government bureaucrats covering things up. I mean, society's built on a lie. And that's really the interesting thing, even at the end of the first one, is that Taylor protects his two friends who are chimpanzees that are scientists whose work is being repressed by the ape government because it goes against this religious mythology they have that they're separate from every other thing on earth and that humans are dumb beasts and they're the only thing in the world with a soul. They don't like the idea of Cornelius digging up fossils in the forbidden zone because it's giving a narrative that's different from what they have, that those things that they shoot at because they're ravaging their crops are sentient, and they can't have that mythology there. 
the same way that they can't have the studies of someone like Dr. Zira, who's studying humans as a veterinarian, go too far because Zira doesn't understand why humans can't speak. They have all the apparatus to. And that's another question that Dr. Zayas doesn't want anyone to ask. So the society that they're living in is built on a lie. And even at the end, when Taylor uncovers that and exonerates both of his friends and escapes, Zayas still kind of wins because the reason for this lie is that he knows full well what humans are and what humans did, that this world and this desert wasteland was created by humans. Not only does he want humans never to have the chance to come back and do that again, he wants to protect apes in their ignorance from ever becoming what humans became. So he's doing all the wrong things for what he believes are the right reasons, why I think he's a classic movie villain. But even he's caught up in his own dogma, because at the end of that very same movie, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, has the darkest ending, in my opinion, of any G-rated movie ever. The mutant's bomb is about to go off, and this is the, the Alpha Omega bomb, and it can destroy the entire planet. Taylor's been gut shot by the gorillas, and he's trying to deactivate it. He's bleeding out, and he tries to ask Dr. Zayas for help. And Dr. Zayas goes right into his anti-human propaganda garbage again. Taylor falls on the bomb. And it explodes, killing everyone on the planet. That is the end of the second movie. The G-rated second movie ends with the hero killing everybody. (laughs) I can't say for sure if it's him intentionally doing it, like saying, oh, fuck this bullshit, and doing it, or if it's him just dying on the controls. I can't see a movie being made like that anymore. See, and that's why, and the first time that I saw that movie was last week, right? So this is all fairly fresh. I thought that ending was written in post-production. Because if you think about the last shot, the last shot is like a hand going up. It could be not Charlton Heston's. It could be a stunt double's hand. A fade to white and then a voiceover that says, "You tell me, Mike, what is it? You know it, right? In one of the countless billions of galaxies in the universe <laughs> is a medium-sized star and one of its satellites, a green and insignificant planet, is now dead. Right. So And then th- no music over the credits. Exactly. <laughs> so th- this to me sounds like they didn't know how to end it. They didn't have any more money. So they were like, oh, well, we'll just fade to white here, write this little piece in here, and then we're done. You're close, but that's not the case. Oh, okay. What happened was it was the only way they could get Charlton Heston back. He refused to do a sequel. And at that point, Charlton Heston was synonymous with Planet of the Apes. It right. was not Roddy McDowell. And they wanted to do a second movie. The, the thing was a surprise hit for everybody. It was one of those movies that everybody thought was going to tank, and then it turned out to be huge. And the studio, you know, in their wisdom said, do that again. Do more. And Heston didn't want to do it because Heston was all about making capital A art. And I think his comment to the studio head was like, nah, it'll be like, I don't want to be Andy Hardy. So they were bargaining, and he finally agreed to be in, like, the first scene. And then they said, well, all right, do it this way. You can be in the first scene, and then you disappear, and then you come back and you're killed. Is that okay? He said, only if it's in a way that there will be no more movies. (laughs) (laughs) And so Heston does take credit for that. That was a world before movie sequels were a thing. I mean, think about it. Hugh Jackman has played Wolverine seven times. That would be unheard of in the 1960s. And if you did it, it was the death knell of your career. It meant you couldn't get other jobs. I mean, you look at the career of George Reeves as Superman. He got too closely associated with the sci-fi franchise, and he couldn't go back to doing the work that he wanted to do before. And I think Heston comes from that era. I mean, he started doing work in the 1950s. He did not want to do cheap movie serials. He thought it was cheap and Saturday morning cartoon stuff. People who came back every week were the people in the movies before the movies. 
So they had to give him a boatload of cash, even to do the scenes that he did. And he's in like 15 minutes, tops. Tops. He's not in very much of Beneath the Planet of the Apes, which is why they brought in James Franciscus, who in many ways is kind of a mini Charlton Heston. Yeah, he's a television version. (laughs) He is still a television Heston. Oh, yeah. He totally looks similar. It's so strange because the first time you see him coming out of the, the second ship, he's dragging his mate out who's dying, right? It's a long shot, and he looks, his hair color, his facial structure is almost exactly the same, and you're like, what the fuck is Charlton Heston doing there? And then the guy talks, and you realize it's not the same guy. He has a similar cadence, too. Yeah. 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 And I think they did that sort of on purpose. They wanted a continuity of tone. He's not as misanthropic as Heston's character Taylor is. Because Taylor spends the first 20 minutes of the first movie essentially trolling one of his subordinates. I mean, I fucking love it. He is Dr. House as an astronaut. He's two-fisted misanthrope. What I love about it is he's so not the Charlton Heston we're used to seeing. So they brought in a guy who's like Heston, I guess maybe Diet Heston, but I still like James Franciscus. He carries the movie well. He goes through all the beats to catch everyone up with the last movie so he can learn all the things that Heston learned before the end. He learns it faster because we need to get on with things. I find it so interesting how sequels have changed since then, because at the time, Heston was like 45. He was not a spring chicken. He still was in way better shape than I've ever been in my life at 45. (laughs) I'm not going to run around in a loincloth. Not even now. (laughs) I think he was afraid of the idea of bearing in these movies and sequels then, because it's sort of like saying, hey, guess what, guys? My career is over. I take it what I can get. And I think the stigma from the Hollywood that he was from was very different. And I think to a lesser extent, we saw this with Alec Guinness on the Star Wars movies. Hmm. He didn't want to come back. A lot of these older guys didn't want to come back, but apart from the career issues that you're bringing up, there was another issue. There's only been one franchise that has defied this wisdom, and that's the James Bond movies. But for the most part, when you made sequels, you made them for less because studio accountants literally had like an equation that a sequel would only do 60% of the original business or something like that. So you had to budget not to equal the box office, but 60%. That was what you shot for. That's one of the things I was talking about earlier about how budget forced them to be smarter because they had less money each time out. Battle for the Planet of the Apes practically looks like a student film compared to what you do oh, today. Yeah, you see the eye holes and all the masks. And, <laughs> you know, huts and old cars and, you know, a couple of ape makeups and you're out. Right. It looks like a TV movie. Yeah. It looks like they just did a two-hour episode of the Planet of the Apes TV show. I actually contend that Escape from the Planet of the Apes looks like a TV movie. They spend most of the time indoors in sets that look like they were recycled from Dragnet or something. And then you have them running around on location in parts of probably of Orange County. Right. They end in a derelict ship. Aside from probably how much they had to rent the helicopters for in the end, they didn't spend a terrible amount of money doing that particular movie. I agree. I look at that and there is this long slope of quality that goes down to the end of Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Though I would argue, I actually think that Conquest of the Planet of the Apes is actually a a really good movie that I still enjoy. I love Conquest. It is remarkably violent film for its time, especially a franchise that had been for the most part aimed at children and audiences of all ages. Suddenly you have the ape characters brutally killing bad guys, human bad guys. I mean, yes, they're fascists, and they're wearing the cool 70s fascist dystopian uniforms that I love the shit out of, but they're still killing them with, like, butcher knives and rifles and stabbing them to death off camera, but it's still pretty brutal for what we were used to seeing in that series. And this is a series that, by the way, 
had previously blown up the world and shot an infant with a handgun. <laughs> <laughs> and oddly enough, Conquest was the one that they had to recut to get the better rating. <laughs> yeah, they had to cut out a big chunk of the ending. The original ending of the movie with Caesar, who's the child of Cornelius and Zira, as sort of this naive kid who's never been to the big city and never seen the brutality that gets brought upon his people. And he turns into essentially a Che Guevara figure at the end who's calling for bloody revenge and, you know, justice for his people by destroying his enemies. The original ending has him give this angry speech about how they're going to create their own society and humans can go pound sand over there because they're just going to kill themselves. And when they come begging to us from the ruins of their civilization, we won't give them jack shit unless they want to serve us drinks. And we'll have our own society and our own religion, and that day begins now. And then they fucking brutally murder the governor by gorillas with, uh, <laughs> with cleavers. And that's how the movie ends, with him giving this angry speech in front of the city in flames. Test audiences were not too happy with that. And they went back and through the power of ADR and a couple close-ups of Roddy McDowell's eyes, right. have him soften a bit at the end and say, but, you know, now that we have power, we can afford to be humane. <laughs> I kind of like the original ending because it gets us more towards the idea that even apes are people, that he's capable of falling into the same cycle of violence and revenge and hatred. And even if you start from a really strong place of genuine reprisal that you have been brutalized and turned into a slave, an object in the same way that Taylor's turned into an object, which I think is probably the scariest thing that can happen to a person. This is why those alien abduction movies are so fucking scary is that you are turned into a thing that people can prod around and make you do things and you have no agency to come back and get revenge for that. I can get that. And I can understand them wanting to soften it because movies and movie audiences were not ready for that in 1973. Just as kind of a footnote to that, that was one of the ones where I came to it through the book first. And the book version of Conquest for the Planet of the Apes was written by John Jakes, who later went on to write the Kent Family Chronicles Mm -hmm. and North and South. He was a writer with chops, and he was working from that original screenplay. And I can tell you that at the age of 12, 13, when I read it, that one really was scary. A book is more immersive to me than a movie anyway. So seeing the movie a few months later, it actually felt kind of toned down from the conquest that I remember. The book was just harrowing because he left in not only all the violence at the end, but there was much more about the sadistic ape conditioning, the slave conditioning that went on at, quote, ape management. (laughs) You look at the movie today and it looks really odd. How did you get from the contemporaneous 1970s to the far future of 1991 when there's a huge slave infrastructure about managing apes and conditioning them with electric cattle prods and whips and flamethrowers into serving drinks and sweeping up. But at the time, I was 11 and didn't quite have the critical facility that I do today. (laughs) And it completely sold me. It was a very creepy, scary book. It's a weird series. The themes all remain the same. The question of whether we can get along with this other group of people because we're all, I wouldn't say predisposed to violence, but the violence is just there under the skin and it just takes the right thing for us to pull out this self-destructive nature that we have in us. And it's about, like you said, it's about overcoming it. But I think that kind of brings another point that I really want to bring up, which is I think that Planet of the Apes has some of the best movie villains that I've seen in just about anything. Yeah, you have a couple people who are just kind of straight out Bond villains like Governor Breck or just dumb thugs like General Ursus. But I really think that characters like Dr. Zaius and Otto Hosslein are real standouts because the thing that really makes them different is that they believe that they are saving the world 
from the perspective of Otto Hosslein, who's shooting that baby with his handgun. He is saving the future. He is shooting John Connor for the humans. <laughs> this thing is going to kill him and turn his people into chattel. He is doing a terrible thing, and he admits it's a terrible thing. The same way Dr. Zaius is going to kill and lobotomize Taylor, even though he knows Taylor's a person, because it's for the good of society. It seems like that's something we didn't see in science fiction movies a lot until about that era. Well, part of it's the social science fiction thing again. There were a lot of pop culture things happening in science fiction and nerd culture right around that time. A lot of younger people were getting into it. The science fiction up through the 50s and early 60s, although it was all supposed to be about youth and flexible thinking and reaching for the future, it was mostly being written by guys in their 50s wearing tweed and bow ties. And it was in the mid-60s that you started to see things like Ellison's Dangerous Visions anthologies and the Clarion Workshops and so on. And there was a lot of fresh takes on it. It's like, you know, science fiction, we don't actually have to explain how the rocket works before we put people in the rocket. We can just go. I don't know if I can even put across to people today who were so jaded about media what it was like then when you only had like five or eight television channels and a couple of newspapers. So what you had was you, you had people that were very invested in learning things and information and they were involved. The student youth movement were very much about pay attention, wake up, this is all happening, da da da, da you know. Today, those people are marginalized as, you know, hippies and freaks and leftists. And that was mainstream college culture back then. And it seems heavy handed. Yeah. Right now, it seems like those allegories are way too obvious. Whereas if you expect a message in something now, you expect subtlety. Yeah. And it was the first message science fiction, I think. It was that era. And so, yeah, it was really heavy handed. Part of it was clumsiness. Part of it was that they were inventing it as they went along. But part of it was just the sheer rage. Just wake up, pay attention. Babies are being burned in Vietnamese villages. Right. The government is lying to you. It was a, a huge thing. And one of the principal screenwriters for Planet, you know, he was blacklisted uh, as part of the McCarthy era, as was Kim Hunter. So definitely- I, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Wow. I didn't know yeah. about Kim Hunter. Yeah. She was blacklisted as well earlier on. So there was definitely an anti-establishment feel on set and even in pre-production going into that that certainly permeates the feel there. Well, the courtroom scene in Planet is amazing. Yeah. In so many levels. For example, that the proving whether or not he's actually intelligent is a test as whether or not he can verbatim understand the principles of the religion. Right, it's yeah. very Salem. Yeah, it is very much very Salem. And then there's what I think probably the best moment of levity in the entire movie is in the scene where I think it's Zero who's trying to convince them, being like, if you could just see, he can talk, he's intelligent. And the three judges do the hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil thing. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's really, it's laugh out loud funny. I'm really glad you brought that up because I was just about to bring up the trial scene in the first movie because I think it's a weird funhouse mirror version of a Next Generation episode called Measure of a Man. Oh, yeah. Yep. Where Android Data is forced to have to defend his sentience before a court, except he has much more enlightened people questioning him. Right. I mean, even the people that think he's just a piece of equipment are never as fucking crazy as Dr. Maximus. Asking him questions about ape scripture, like, how is there proof that only apes have souls? And what is the proof of a spark of divinity in the simian brain? And Heston just kind of politely says, I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with your culture. And he's like, you are not familiar with our culture because you cannot think. 
<laughs> it's beautiful. It's like a master's course in logical fallacies. And it's really, really good at getting you how frustrating the situation is because you have this guy who just wants to pull out a gun and start shooting them, as Heston is wont to do. But he can't. He has to actually be civil and prove that humanity isn't all these things that he has previously spent the first 45 minutes saying they are. All the while, the apes are acting exactly the way he says the humans did as well. For all the talk about how apes are separate from all the other beasts of the field, they act exactly like the humans did. Yeah, there really isn't anything that apes do in these movies, especially the first two where they have this repressive culture that humans haven't done at some point in our past. And in fact, that's the point. If you're watching textbook hearings out of Texas right now, there are people making those same fallacious arguments about <laughs> Christian culture that the apes were making about the sacred scrolls. You know, you may say it's over the top, but then you look at our current situation about dogma in this country, and it's actually almost frightening. It really is. It's probably one of the reasons you couldn't make apes today. It's a little too close to home for a lot of people. Yeah, not even just because of the dark endings that we get in a lot of these movies, because I don't think there is a single happy ending to any one of the five films. The first one ends with Taylor broken in the ground, looking up at the ruins of the civilization he come from and realizing that when he was defending Cornelius and Zira and saying that, yeah, there was a former human culture on this planet, he was looking through a mass grave of what was left of the place he came from. The second movie, he blows up the fucking world. And the third movie, infant with a handgun. <laughs> the fourth movie, you know, bloody revolt and humans getting rounded up in the square and stabbed with butcher knives. And in the fifth movie, you get kind of a bittersweet ending and it feels kind of like it chickened out a little bit at the end. I believe they did actually chicken out. As I understand it, and again, this is coming from the, the novelization that was working from the original screenplay, Culp and his crazy underground dwelling New York community are already the keepers of the doomsday bomb. And I just watched the movie. It wasn't in the movie, but it was in the book. And I didn't realize until years later that David Gerald didn't put it there. It must have been in the screenplay. Yeah. Hmm. And in my youthful nerdity, I just was excited because it's like, oh, wow, it's a total causal loop paradox story now. Because if Taylor had never shown up, then the world would never have blown up and Cornelius and Zero would never have come back and we never would have had a planet. It's, you know, that sort of thing just blew my little brind back then. Mm -hmm. It's a Terminator loop. And I think it's yeah. the first movie that's ever done that where yeah. time travel from the future creates the future that the time traveler came from. I don't think that's ever happened before. And actually, they did film the scene with the bomb. It's on the Blu-ray and I believe some later editions of the DVD. Uh. So it is on there. They show that Mendez, the second in command to Culp, has the bomb. And if you might notice, again, another one of these Easter eggs, Mendez is the name on the hymn scripture thing that the mutants are reading off of in the church in Beneath the Planet of the Apes. It's like Mendez the 26th or something. <laughs> it's kind of fun, and I think it may be the first series that did Easter eggs like this. We're so used to this as nerds now. The Captain America movie, The Winter Soldier, just came out this year, and there's a throwaway line that references Doctor Strange, so we know we're going to get a Doctor Strange movie somewhere down the line. That never used to happen in movies. There never used to be throwaway lines or things that you'd follow up on or this kind of mythology that gets built in offhanded remarks. And even the character of Otto Hossline in the very first movie where Heston is talking to the other astronauts about how the ship works, and he mentions Dr. Hossline's theory... Unless I'm wrong, it probably has been done like crazy in science fiction literature, but I don't think it had ever been done in science fiction film. 
Well, part of that is that you could get sued over it. There was a famous case with Harlan Ellison putting a bunch of his friends' names in an episode of The Man from U.N.C.L.E. that he wrote, and Judith Merrill sued, and that one is never in the syndication package now. Really? Yeah. It's one of those weird nerd feud things. There's a whole story that I won't get into, but Judith Merrill and Harlan Ellison didn't get along. I know, shocker, Harlan Ellison. Yeah, I was going to say, not, not too many people get along with Harlan <laughs> Ellison now. <laughs> but, but there was that concern. There was always, you know, you have to submit your script to the studio to have names, quote, cleared. And you couldn't always get away with that stuff, but this is getting rather far afield. There was an episode of the old Adam West Batman where they named a sheikh and an episode with a joker, but they named him after some Arabian obscene sexual act and nobody caught it. (laughs) (laughs) I love you, Batman. (laughs) (laughs) But with the Apes movies, I think part of it is that you didn't have this happen very often either, certainly not in a franchise situation. The James Bond movies were, again, the other exception to this, but you had one guy. Paul Dane came in and he was the guy that cracked the sequel and they just kept coming back to him and he created this whole mythology. So you have like a, essentially a single author situation. And with the Bond movies, you had Richard Maybaum and he was kind of the same go-to guy for most of the early Bond films, but that didn't happen very often. Usually the writer was a hired gun and then they'd have somebody come in and rewrite it. And it was very much a work for hire contract kind of a deal. Nobody worrying about unity of vision in film franchises then. You had like Frankie and Annette Beach movies. Nobody worried about continuity issues there. It was all very catch-as-catch-can. There were three different Gidgets in the three Gidget movies, three different writers. Nobody cared. Planet of the Apes, like with any popular media, just couldn't be restrained by one medium. It spawned action figures from Mego, lunchboxes, expanded universe novels, the TV show, a board game, comic books. A lot of people give Star Wars kind of the credit for creating that. I mean, Star Wars blew Planet of the Apes out of the water by the sure amount of merchandising it created, but it feels like Planet of the Apes is kind of forgotten as being there first. So what stuff have you guys consumed from the Apes Expanded Universe, and how does it hold up compared to the source material? Well, I'm a reader, so I was always about the books and the comics. Marvel's Planet of the Apes comic magazine, it was a magazine-sized black and white. It was marketed alongside stuff like Vampirella and High Times. It was kind of in the naughty magazine section of the bookstore. (laughs) Not with actual dirty magazines like Playboy and stuff that were under the counter, but just the ones that were kind of, if your parents saw you with them, they would kind of give you the stink eye and you'd have to, I had to smuggle mine home. (laughs) (laughs) My mother was like really paranoid. But those and the original material, there was an ongoing serial called Terror on the Planet of the Apes that was designed to be a sequel to battle. It was Jason, the angry young human who's worried about ape oppression and his sympathetic chimpanzee friend, Alexander, that's always trying to calm him down and get him to be peaceful. But the stories were written by Doug Mensch in the era of the Marvel Comics bullpen where there was a lot of dope being smoked, frankly. And uh, (laughs) and, uh, the Planet of the Apes magazine comics are insane. Literally, they look like they were written by somebody who was high, and I think that probably was the case. (laughs) There's nothing is out of bounds. There are mushball, mutant, I guess they started as human, but they look like animated schmooze from Lil Abner. They're sort of shapeless and formless, and they have iron helmets, and they're commanded by brains in jars. (laughs) And the brains in jars are conspiring with the guerrilla general Brutus to wipe out all humans, but Brutus doesn't know that the brains are going to wipe out everybody, except their little mushball servants, because, you know... Humans and apes are just icky, I guess. Not like brains in jars. They're cluttering up the landscape. The Krang. 
<laughs> it is totally it's totally crank. <laughs> then the second serial is about trying to find a magical place called the psychodrome which is overseen by a guy in a robe who his face is like multiple tentacles with eyes on the end wow i'm telling you <laughs> it's nuts so does it hold up no but i have sort of a weird fondness for it anyway just because it's so whatever just throw it in there it's science fiction nobody cares anything works there are no rules <laughs> um and the other affection I have for that magazine is the serious articles. They interviewed everybody. They started with the people on the TV show, like Ron Harper and Roddy McDowell. They worked their way through to William Kreider, the art director on the movies. Then they got the makeup guys. Then it was the costume guys. And then there was one brilliant article where one really dedicated fan, and I love this because I understand this impulse. It comes from being a Sherlock Holmes Baker Street, a regular guy where the game is always to work out the real chronology. This guy sat down and tried to work out how the fall of humanity and the chronology of ape culture and when each movie happened and when the TV series took place. And he tried to reconcile all the weird date things that just don't add up in the movies because they don't, because nobody cared. And <laughs> I can point out like 10 problems at the TV show. <laughs> he just falls on his sword trying to work it out. I, uh, I was actually going to run off a of Xerox of that and bring it down here just because I knew you would love it. <laughs> <laughs> and that guy didn't even have to contend with the animated show, which really screwed everything up. Yeah, they went back to the thing with them having helicopters and stuff. So, Todd, I know you are a big Expanded Universe guy, particularly Star Wars. Sure. So have you ever dabbled in any Apes Expanded Universe stuff or merchandise? Oh, you mean the Apes Legends stuff is what I think Lucasfilm is now calling it? <laughs> Apes Legends colon Dr. Zayas. <laughs> Not so much. As I mentioned, I watched the TV show, which I don't remember very much of more images than anything. And a little bit of the cartoon, but I also, in my mind, I confuse that with the Star Trek cartoon and the Jackson 5 cartoon. <laughs> so many similarities. Uh, I was going to say, were they all done by Hal Sutherland Studios, do you think? I get those mixed up all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was the one where I thought that the apes were trying to save the world by playing music and they got assistance from the Harry Godfather, but that also was Jackson 5. So <laughs> that's pretty much it for me. You and I have talked about it before. Some of the graphic novels you said have, have been excellent, but I haven't delved into that. So Casey, I know you're new to this. I mean, you've seen Planet of the Apes merchandise and references. The only thing that would extend the conversation here, which none of us have even dared to talk about, the Tim Burton remake and the James Franco reboot, I suppose, of it. So if you're talking about things that I've consumed, that's the only thing that I've seen that's sort of extended the original movies, and I think they clearly have their problems. They have their problems so much so that none of you guys even bothered to talk about these. <laughs> so I think we should. I think we should start with the Tim Burton movie, because I think this conversation will be mercifully short. <laughs> I've yet to meet anyone who actually likes the Tim Burton movie. I think if we found such a person, we'd have to put them in a museum or something. <laughs> so I think I'll just sum it up like this with this question. Does the movie deserve the hatred that it gets? Yes. <laughs> that was going to be my low point. Thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally my low point is, is the remake. It's my low point in terms of personal taste. I just didn't care for it. I think it's emblematic of the tendency of modern movie makers to go back to something that they loved and get it completely wrong. They wanted to distance themselves from the original, and they distanced themselves so much from the original that they forgot what the original was about. Right. 
Apart from that, I just don't care for it. Tim Burton movies are, and me don't really get along. Tim Burton is one of those guys that thinks in scenes and not in plot. He puts in things that look cool that just don't make any sense at all. And that just, it offends me as a consumer of fiction. It offends me as a guy that writes fiction professionally. It feels to me like he's not doing his job somehow when these movies that just don't make any sense. Alfred Hitchcock used to call them refrigerator moments. You know, you're watching it and it's fun while it's happening. Then you're home at night getting a snack and suddenly it hits you. Wait a minute. That couldn't have happened because (laughs) that guy wasn't on the planet yet or, you know, something like that. It was that, oh, wait, no. And Tim Burton movies are just like festivals of those. (laughs) We had debated, you and I, Mike, about whether or not we or I would need to go back and actually watch the Tim Burton movie to round out this conversation. And I struggled with it because I thought it's like having to read a really bad novel. It's like you have to pick yourself up and force yourself to do it because it's such an unpleasant experience. And the only thing that I can remember, and the research I was doing before the panel made this a little more interesting, but also made it a little more insulting, is that the original French novel, the end of the movie has Ulysses, which is the Taylor character. He goes back to France and sees a recognizable version of the Eiffel Tower. And then when he lands their spaceship, he sees a gorilla in a Jeep and realized that, oh my God, the ape conspiracy was real and not fake. And that is essentially the scene that they aped no pun intended, at the end of Tim Burton's... That was totally intended. (laughs) Yeah. At the end of Tim Burton's... And that made no sense at all. What, Abraham Lincoln statue? Abraham Lincoln, yes. That made no sense. (laughs) That is what I remember from the movie, is the end of the movie making no sense. It wasn't even a refrigerator moment. It wasn't even a lobby moment when I said this makes no sense. (laughs) It was a terrible movie. I will say that I actually did enjoy the makeup effects in that movie. I think they did a good job of making people look like apes. That is where my enjoyment of that movie ends. But that's Tim Burton's whole shtick. Batman looks brilliant and it has a huge hole in the middle. Beetlejuice looks awesome and has all these awesome moments, but there's no actual linear plot to it. And Planet of the Apes, I think, is the worst example of that. They're just scenes. They're just a string of scenes. See, I loved Tim Burton movies almost up to that era, and I was just disgusted with him after that. And as far as the makeup goes, it's well done, I mean, as far as an execution standpoint, but to me, it very much seems like I'm watching actors. Hmm. Whereas when I watch Zira and Cornelius, that's Zira and Cornelius. That's true. Mm -hmm. And that's Mm -hmm. 1968. Yeah, there were better characters underneath all that makeup, and I think that Tim Burton created props. Well, you know, one of the things that I think it was Ben Nye, he was telling Roddy McDowell in particular, that the key to full face makeup, to making that work, is to move your face constantly. He does, but I mean, he's not really moving it constantly. He does so much more with his eyes. He does those little things with his mouth and things like that when you watch it. But then when you watch the Burton, they can't stop moving their faces. You feel like you got somebody operating electronics from behind doing things to the face as well. It reminds me of my beef that I've complained about with Gollum and other CG characters is that, geez, hold still for a second. Well, I'm looking at you right now. You're not moving. There you moved. You see what I'm saying, though? (laughs) But, you know, there is stillness to life. So it bothers me on every level. I mean, except for the fact that it has Terry Tagawa. Oh. Terry Tagawa, yeah, I remember that. As a gorilla, Yeah, who can't swim. He can't swim. (laughs) So that kind of brings us to the new reboot, because we're coming into the first time we've seen a reboot of the Planet of the Apes be so successful that it actually spawned a sequel, which is coming out next month. I had a weird moment, too. One of the last times I was at the movie theater, I think the AMCs do this, where the young kids have a name tag. It's their first name. And then also they list their favorite movie. I've seen that. There was a girl who was getting my popcorn order, and her favorite movie was Rise of the Planet of the Apes. And I was thinking... Well, you're young, right? So a movie that came out last year is your favorite movie of all time. 
But then I was thinking, yeah, it was a really good movie. And kids that may not have ever seen the 68 movie would have been like, oh, yeah, I can understand why this is cool, why Planet of the Apes is cool. And I think the movie worked despite James Franco, which is really a miracle in and of itself. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad I'm not the only one that feels that way about James Franco. (laughs) So, Franco aside, what did you guys think of Rise of the Planet of the Apes? I didn't see it all the way through. I thought it was okay, but it didn't hold my interest enough. I had other things to do. I was watching it at home. I didn't see it in the theater. And I think part of that is just such a passionate love for the original combined with, you know, disastrous remake by Tim Burton that I just didn't want to pay to go see another potentially bad remake of Planet of the Apes. I saw everything from the beginning to about three quarters of the way through at home, but I had other things to do, so I had to do them. You know, it wasn't like, oh, no, I'm not moving. Great. I liked it a lot. People keep talking about it as a reboot of Planet of the Apes, but to me, it's more of a remake of Conquest of the Planet of the Apes on a much smaller scale. That was what I liked about it. Hmm. My inner nerd was like, oh, I get it. They're going to do the Paul Dane causal loop thing again. And now we have the instigating incident is the Alzheimer's medicine or whatever. So it appealed to my inner continuity nerd who was always at war with my literary critic, highfalutin art guy that went to college and understands about literary themes and stuff. What I liked about Rise was that, first of all, Franco didn't take me out of the movie. The trouble with me and James Franco is I always think of him being, you know, baked at the Academy Awards, and that sort of colors every... every. Prefer- I know he can't possibly be that way all the time. You don't time. want him making your Alzheimer's medication? <laughs> yeah. But that's always in the back of my head. When he delivers a line, it always sounds like he's a little enhanced, and, and I know it's just in my head. He's kind of Keanu. <laughs> yeah. There's kind of a Keanu thing going on there for me but i was so tickled to see the whole conquest idea come back and also the people who made rise you know they have all the modern advantages but they understood the important part which is you know beware the beast man Mm -hmm. it's again it's always about Mm -hmm. bad people and and people giving into their worst i enjoy caesar the revolutionary it was nice to see that character back in a new suit so i really dug it i was happy with it too I didn't see it in theaters, and I'm a huge Die Hard Apes fan, and I think that there was some still residual aftertaste from the Tim Burton one in 2001 that held on for 10 years, and I'm a bit as a nerd coming at it with a bit of a knee-jerk remake disdain, and I think we all have that, which is well-founded. We've been burned a lot. (laughs) We we all have stories. (laughs) So I avoided it because I assumed, again, one, James Franco, two, cash in. But it really felt like the people who made it understood the themes behind it, that you can change almost anything about a licensed property when you reboot it or relaunch it or remake it. As long as you understand the point of it and you actually like the source material, you can go in radically different directions. And they did. I'm actually happier that they made it so unlike the original and were able to go in different directions, but held to that idea of human beings, like with the apes in the original movie, thinking we're so much better than anything else and every other living thing on earth is an object for us to use and brutalize and discard and seeing others around us as something we can use rather than appreciating their sentience and seeing that occasionally that shit can come back on us. And I really like that part of the movie. Also, Andy Serkis really sold me here. I mean, I've seen him as Gollum and a couple other things in other movies, but this was the first time it felt like I was really watching a CGI performance rather than a cartoon character. I like Gollum, and Gollum is fun, but I think Gollum was an experiment in the sense that I can follow him on screen, but he was a bit of a cartoon character who has moments of seriousness, where Caesar feels like a serious character. It feels like there's a chimpanzee actor there. Yeah. And there's subtlety in his performance that we never saw in Gollum, 
because Gollum, even when he was having those serious moments, would often monologue what he was doing. And now he's in a character that literally cannot speak until the very end of the movie. That's something that once I actually saw it on DVD, I'm like, you know what? I'm glad they remade this. Not just because of all the cool little Easter eggs, like the name of the zookeeper dude who's brutalizing the ape's name is Dodge Landon. (laughs) And Dodge and Landon are the two names of the other astronauts from the first movie. There's a lot of little Easter eggs that they stick in there, but they're subtle. It's kind of like the X-Men Easter eggs. Put them in there so the right people get them, but the wrong people glaze over them and it doesn't detract from the movie. So... I'm excited to see the next movie, and I didn't expect to be until I saw the first one. I'm like, you know what? I want to watch more of this. I want to see where they're going. I want to diverge there from a little bit. I thought the strongest part of Rise of the Remake was how they were able to, this shows how anthropocentric our language is, how they were able to humanize the apes. Really what we're saying is how they were able to create a sense of pathos around the plight of animals make them be persons, right? They're, they were persons. Caesar is a person in the same way that an insect is not a person to us. But it felt like they were doing the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings thing by the end of the movie, which is any movie of appropriate epic scale needs to have a huge CG rendered from 5,000 feet up battle scene that things blow up and people are shot or killed or, or something like that. The whole of them crossing the bridge and then getting over into the forest or whatever seemed like it was service to that. Well, you can't have a big movie if you don't have a huge epic battle at the end. That's why you're seeing things like Maleficent and the Jack and the Beanstalk movie, how they're just like, we'll just take a story and as long as we have some crazy shit and then throw a battle in the end, done. They had a crazy battle scene at the end of both Alice in Wonderland and Noah. Does a Noah's Ark (laughs) movie need an army descending on something? That's my worry about the next movie is that it will be all that. Is that there'll be some A plot about like, oh, these apes are making their own civilization. And then the rest of the movie will be a lineup to a 40 fucking minute CGI battle scene that I will be asleep before it's over. You know, I agree with you about the pathos. I thought that was extremely well done. At the same time, in just a matter of minutes, the introduction to 28 Days Later, I felt the exact same level of pathos for the chimpanzees. Oh, right, right. Right. Oh, so oh, yeah. I was kind of done with it by the time he's wanted to ride the bike. Yeah, I guess there's some disagreement on that, but I think it's time for us to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to do High Point, Low Point. And we are back on Radio vs. the Martians. We're talking Planet of the Apes, and it's time to go to the top of the mountain, the bottom of the barrel. Yes, it is time for High Point, Low Point where we look at the very best and the very worst of the ape saga. Todd, what is the low point of Planet of the Apes? I've given a lot of thought to that. I mentioned I was going to say the Tim Burton remake, but I had a lot of trouble finding anything that bothered me about the initial Planet of the Apes movie. Recently on a, on a rewatch, I noticed that, I mean, what's the deal with the butts? They have bare asses all over the place in that movie. Like, they go skinny dipping. But like three scenes before that, we see a great shot of Charlton Heston, I think it's Heston, climbing up a rock. And you can see he's clearly wearing boxers. So why would they not keep their boxers on? Then they wouldn't be quite as vulnerable when the savages take their clothing. <laughs> My son asked me that. He said, why do they have to take everything off to go swimming? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, that's a good question. Because they're like completely naked in the jungle. They look just like the rest of the bozos. I mean, that would have possibly caused a new problem for the apes if they're wearing boxers, <laughs> right? A lesser layer of protection from the vicious Kandiru fish. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. You know, and of course, later on, I think it makes a lot more sense when we see Heston when he's in the court scene and he's stripped of his stinking blanket that he's wearing only to hold it 
you know, obviously it's just to humiliate him, right? And so that really makes sense for the camera to have just a great square shot of his naked body right there. But I'm not sure why they had to be, like you said, it's a G-rated movie and why they had to be naked early on in the movie. It really, uh, that to me is the best I can do for low point for that movie. (laughs) Was this before or after Barbarella? Does anyone know? I do not. I think they were aiming at a different hem- demographic when okay, it came to Heston S. Admittedly, admittedly, but you know there was a certain point at which it was like, nudity in a movie can be cheeky. They were concerned about no nudity in the scene. God damn it. <laughs> the head of the studio took exception to Heston being nude in the court scene, not in the skinny huh. dipping scene. Really? And I think it's because of the humiliation factor, but they were worried about that. They were worried that it'd be backlash against the humiliation plus nudity rather than, you know, I'm happy when I'm jumping into the water I'm naked. I'm speculating about the humiliation factor. Otherwise, what's the difference? But that was the scene that there was discussion about, the nudity in the court well, scene. Well, one makes people uncomfortable. The other looks like fun. I can see why the studio would go, we don't want to make people uncomfortable. Along with that, I'm glad you brought up the fun part because it just reminded me that, you know, these guys just realized they have 72 hours worth of food and they just found vegetation, sure. But so far, they haven't eaten anything. They just find the swimming hole. They strip down and they're all hooting and hollering <laughs> as they're, woo! Every single one of them, woo! They're, they're in the water swimming <laughs> I naked. Was, I always wondered why that was so exciting to them because they had just escaped from water. So it wasn't like the first time that they'd seen water on the planet. Yeah. It was like, oh, more water. Whoa! But this is fresh This one water. has a waterfall. Uh, yeah. Okay, yeah. And it was pretty. It was on the, <laughs> the Fox Ranch. <laughs> sure. sure. This was an out in the desert. Plus, I can imagine if I'm walking across the desert for, I know it's 20 minutes of film, but I mean, I'm sweating in this room right now and I could jump, <laughs> woo, naked into a waterfall yeah. now. It's just that they had a really bad case of the swamp crotch and they were yeah. happy to see the water. See, that's why Heston's so grumpy at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> well, you know, that's the thing too, is it's suddenly, I guess it's a, a great bonding moment because he goes from just as, as Landon says, we crawl off my back. He won't get off Landon's back for anything. And then moments later, you know, they're all buddies, nude swimming. It feels a little weird to me, especially knowing they've got boxer shorts. <laughs> Like, if it's hot in here, if we go out back and there's a swimming pool, I don't expect that we're all going to strip down. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Mike might. He's threatening to. This is probably a good time to talk about the post-show ritual. (laughs) (laughs) So, Greg, low point. Well, I can't let go of my anger at the Tim Burton movie. But really, if I'm taking off my fanboy hat and putting on my actual artist's critic's hat, the live-action television series is another example of really spectacularly missing the point. Because if you watch the TV show, the men are always smarter than the apes. And the through line of that show is always, no, no, you apes are getting it wrong. Here's a piece of ancient human wisdom that will help you and solve your problem this week. And it was just really not very original. It's the same template as the TV version of Logan's Run, Hmm. as a TV show that was on more or less the same time called The Fantastic Journey. All of it, I personally think, was kind of lifted from a Gene Roddenberry television pilot called Genesis 2. Hmm. It's we go across the post-apocalyptic Earth and we find a different weird village each week and solve their problem. And feel superior to them. Somebody's chasing (laughs) us, though, so we can't hang around even though we could totally run the place because we're all smarter than that. Galactica 1980. Yeah. Yeah. That is weird. I mean, there are things in the TV show that I think are kind of neat. Not a lot of them. I like the fact that the chief villain... 
not Dr. Seuss 2, but General Urko, who's played by Mark Leonard mm. of Star Trek fame. I think it's kind of cool. He's played a Klingon. He's played a Vulcan, a Romulan, and now a gorilla. <laughs> so I think he gets a bingo. <laughs> but Free space in the middle. It's one of those things that you really can't fit it anywhere into the ape canon if we're going to go there. But it's so, like you said, it misses the point. It's not the job of the humans to go around saying that the society we came from was so much better and we're going to fix you. It's that our society sucked so bad that you even exist. Mm -hmm. That if we're so great, what happened? That big sand patch we just went through? That's what's left of our society. That's what we did to it. Not you, what we did to it. So yeah, I can get that. Although I will add that I have tremendous nostalgic affection for it just because it was such a big honking deal when I was, you know, 12, that it was going to be on TV every week. And I do have affection for it, although really in my head, I think of it as Starsky and Hutch on the Planet of the Apes. That's <laughs> it does. Really, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's really what it is. With Cornelius <laughs> or, or Galen, as he's called. It's the same fucking character in a different outfit with a different name. It's still Cornelius. It's Roddy McDowell in the yeah. exact same costume, but... I guess he's Huggy Bear. <laughs> <laughs> so I know you're somebody who is new to the Planet of the Apes, Casey, and you're somebody who I can tell is not high on it, especially post-first film. So let us have it. What is the low point? You know, it's funny. I was anticipating a pylon for the Tim Burton movie. Admittedly, that movie should just not have existed. I think we've established that. And as much as I hate reboots, I have to say that the one that bothered me the most in the original Quintilogy, is that what it's called? A Quintilogy? is Escape from Planet of the Apes. And here's the reason why. I feel like it's the first movie where it feels like the filmmakers themselves were just fucking phoning it in, like from a production standpoint. I mean, at this point, they had, for reasons that we've discussed, jettisoned Charlton Heston's character. They blew up the entire planet. And so the creation of this movie as a sequel is an attempt to sort of undo the ultimate sequel killer is killing everyone, right? So how do you continue the plot here? Time travel. Not the kind of time travel that you had in the first one, which is traveling at relativistic speeds. They do a big U-turn, right? And they come back and it's 2,000 years later. They end up going forward in time. Now it's going back in time. It's funny, when I was preparing these notes, I didn't expect for us to trespass upon this area about using the temporal causality loop, the predestination paradox, as a part here, because I've seen it so many goddamn times that whenever I see it as the way that you resolve a time travel story, I'm like, come on, you've got nothing better to do. But now that my attention might be shifting here for this at this point, because if this really is the first sci-fi movie to use the predestination paradox as a plot device, then it's a bit more novel. But if I see it now in a movie, I'm like, seriously, lazy, lazy writers, incredibly lazy writers. So we'll set that aside. I mean, I think the thing that seems strange and was just cringe-inducingly hokey for me was like the fish-out-of-water stuff with Zira and Cornelius. They're like, oh, isn't this great? We're like celebrities and whatever. And, and it was, it's dated. It's silly. I know it's meant to be played for levity. Like, I completely understand that. It reads to me as so awkward in a trilogy of movies at that point where it was so serious beforehand. And then you move Dr. Hosline having metaphysical certitude that these people have to be killed and they're going to stop at nothing of killing them. This is the same type of certitude that moves into the fourth movie that also even further strains credulity. Just like, oh, wait, there's a talking ape. Your ape talked. There's a talking ape. We need to torture Khan Noonien Sung and get the ape out of him. Like, 
The audience knows that this talking ape is significant. There's no fucking reason for the humans to know or care about why a talking ape would be significant. No reason whatsoever. But we just have to, like, be quiet and sit down and, and watch them race around for the last 50 minutes of the movie to for eventually the, the tragedy to happen. So that part, I, I just could not. My It took me out of the movie. It took me to the stratosphere of the movie. And I never came back from it. It's weird because I have to fight a bit of the knee-jerk nerd defensiveness that I feel a little bit because it's actually one of my favorite movies in the series because it's so weird and because it has such a tonal shift from beginning to end. It is dated in places, but again, it's a movie that was made in the 1970s, so it's going to look like a 1970s movie. I want to finish my point here because the franchise made tens of millions of dollars up until this point at the box office, and for reasons, Greg, that you were talking about, they weren't getting more money. They were just getting less money. By the end of the movie, it seemed like they were just running out of film stock and they had to do fewer and fewer shots. Like you've got like a minute long cut where Hosline is chasing Cornelius around the ship and it's like a fucking wide shot. And one guy comes out one door and goes in another and the other comes out another door and you're like, change the shot already. The end of the movie. So the tragedy happens and then you zoom in on the talking chimpanzee in the cage and he goes, mama and apparently they couldn't find a chimpanzee clever enough that they have to loop the film back and forth like 12 times to get this mo this mouth motion it's got the back and, and forth that's zoom how you a end the bit. film you end the film with the cheesiest worst looking photographic effect in the movie and that's the last shot and you fade to black it is inexcusable it's inexcusable incompetence for filmmaking would you say that escape is worse than battle no because by that point my expectations are just so low I just think that the filmmaking incompetence for the third movie tore me out of it so much that I could no longer engage with the plot. That's as much as you can say for a franchise of movies, right? If you disengage entirely. For my low point, I'd say that I'm a bit conflicted. On one hand, as you mentioned earlier, Greg, the continual slashing of the budget forced innovation. It forced them to make interesting decisions. It forced them to go in a very different direction than it would have gone nowadays because you know you're going to get a bigger budget and the expectation of the studio nowadays and the fans nowadays is I want something exactly like that but slightly different and with more explosions. But that's not what we got. We had a movie series where the star was only in the second movie for 20 minutes. You had more pullover ape masks that made it easier to pull you out of the movie. Instead of the prosthetic pliances, you got fewer apes as movies went on. And you had a lot of these major plot points have to take place off screen because they simply couldn't afford to do a nuclear war on screen. So there were a lot of places that you could tell that their imagination was being stifled. I make that low point with some reservations. Escape, which I know that you hate, Casey, but I love the fact that it's something completely different and that it has a completely different tone than the one that preceded it. It does have that turn from fish out of water into characters being hunted down and their baby being murdered. That's not the sort of movie that you expect when you see scenes of Cornelius and Zira talking about what a bubble bath feels like <laughs> or Zira talking to the women's club <laughs> and wearing just gaudy 70s clothes. Though I have to admit, I really want Cornelius's awesome like Burger King colors <laughs> bathrobe that he's wearing in that scene. I believe with a bubble pipe, if I'm not remembering incorrectly. <laughs> And his horrific reaction to boxing is beastly. I think the little moments like that I really like because I think it helps butter you up a little bit for, you know, infanticide later on. <laughs> but adversity forces them to make creative decisions rather than easy ones. But I can't help wondering what that movie in another dimension would have looked like, that sequel to The Planet of the Apes where 
Charlton Heston wouldn't have been afraid to sign on for a sequel for what it would do to his career. Where the studio goes, wow, that was a huge hit. What can you do with the exact same amount of money, if not more money? What can we do with this world that we haven't done before now that you have the freedom? Because I know that Beneath was like the fifth script they pumped out. There was a movie called The Planet of the Men that was about Heston trying to re-civilize mute savage humans in the Forbidden Zone. And I wonder what this would have looked like if there wouldn't have been this stigma to movie sequels or franchises that just doesn't exist now. I wonder what could have been, and that's the kind of low point where what could have been could have been a great deal worse. It could have been a one crappy sequel. But I can't help but wonder what they could have done with a fifth movie, because Battle from the Planet of the Apes, again, looks like a television movie where, yeah, we can blow up the same treehouse three fucking times in this battle. <laughs> this massive battle, which mostly just involves 20 extras running this way across the field and 20 more extras in different costumes running that way across the field. And it feels like there's a story there they want to tell that they just can't because of the limitations. There are big ideas that do need a budget to be done well. Battle for the Planet of the Apes is the best example of it, of a movie that could have been so much better. I don't necessarily want that big, massive Lord of the Rings sweeping over the hill, CGI, whatever that you see in all these movies. I want something that feels a bit bigger and a little less sad than watching somebody basically do a Planet of the Apes war reenactment. It felt like a bunch of fans were fucking around on a field dressed in gorilla costumes. Now that sounds like fun. It does sound like fun. We need to create a Planet of the Apes war reenactment. <laughs> and just recreate the hunting scene from the first movie. It's like, you get on horses, we're going to dress in rags, and you can chase us across the field and throw nets on us. <laughs> But yeah, I, I really kept thinking, what could this have been? And it hurts a little bit. Here's a thought for you. I have kind of that same feeling about Battle for the Planet of the Apes, but it's not about the vehicles. It's not about the crowd scenes. I think what a different movie it would have been if they'd invested in a little makeup for the mutant humans. Just a little bit of the ravaged radio scarring and stuff that you saw on Beneath, because that's what's weird to me. You know, I don't understand why we all have to move underground and, and dress like mimes. How does that, how is that code for evil mutant? That was weird to me. And again, because I'm coming from it from the novel, where in my head I'm thinking they're like the proto mutants from beneath the planet of the apes. I expected scarring and nastiness. And in the comics, when they adapted it, they drew them as just awful, like Toxic Avenger level nasty. So I think by that point in the franchise, they were so terrified of the word makeup that they just didn't want to deal with it. Let's pull ourselves out of the Forbidden Zone and <laughs> look at the best of Planet of the Apes, because I think there's a lot of best to be found. So let's talk a bit about High Point. And Casey, I think given the fact that your low point was so low, and I get a real sense that you really dislike the sequels and a lot of things in the movies, what did you find was best? Well, I want to say Planet of the Apes, the musical starring Troy McClure, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think that's giving enough credit to the franchise. <laughs> From chimpanzee to chimpanzee, get your paws off me, you damn dirty ape. Like, amazing. And one of those things that will be parodied, kind of like an Arnold Schwarzenegger voice, people are going to say it with a Charlton Heston snarl forever because it's so good. The original movie, in its naked form, it's co-written by Rod Serling, a masterful screenwriter. He's the guy who basically invented speculative fiction on television. And the legacy of that, you can see in Planet of the Apes. This is what I said. It's like a Twilight Zone episode writ large. 
I would say my only real complaint about the first film is that just the title of the film spoils the reveal that the three astronauts are supposed to have. It's the planet of the apes, so you know they're going to land and they're going to expect there to be apes there. But you do see in the, the actor's reaction, they're like, get their clothes stolen, and they go out and then, holy shit, they're apes on horses? That's a shocking moment. It would have been incredible to preserve that reveal for the audience. But because you got to tease the action of by the title to get people asses in seats, right? Like you had to do that. It is a movie with a spoiler that was so great and so shocking, like that even if people have never even seen it, like you've said, it's so iconic that they know what it is. And that puts it in a pantheon of films with great twists like Citizen Kane and Empire Strikes Back. And when you consider the gravity of what that says about a movie called Planet of the Apes, like that's high praise. That's extraordinary high praise. And then I think the last part about it is Charlton Heston. He makes this film. I just love the idea of the misanthrope who gives so few fucks that he's in a sealed capsule traveling at relativistic speeds and he's smoking a cigar. <laughs> he's like, I don't care if I die from carbon monoxide poisoning and everyone else crashes. I hate humanity. <laughs> it's this. they neutered him in the second film, right? And that, that was maybe part of my animus towards it. But you can't get any better than that. And for, for me, that will be Charlton Heston forever. Todd? High point was even harder than low point for me because there's just so many, so many excellent things about Planet of the Apes. Like you, I'd grown up watching it a lot of times on television and it was always, you know, it's always going to be pan and scan. You, know, you didn't have mm. widescreen TVs and it was on, you know, one of your three channels and with commercials and so on. And I think I was in high school in the early 90s when AMC for the first time was playing them all for some that I think they were doing a marathon and they were doing the full widescreen on television. And it was amazing. I always loved Planet of the Apes, but I did think of it as sort of schlocky, you know, especially considering the show and everything else, the toys. But I was really taken by how beautiful, especially the first movie, how beautifully it's shot from, you know, those excellent Arizona wide shots to even the studio backlot shots just look fantastic. And then, you, of course, you have Jerry Goldsmith's score, which oh. is stupendous. Oh, my God. And it's been used in operas and things like that, you know, just lifted that and use it in operas different symphonic pieces elsewhere and he was, he was so inventive with it he used like metal bowls and things like that as a instruments ram's horn. yeah ram's horn when you were talking about the reveal of you know hey it's apes and you're absolutely right they had to to get people to go to the movie they got to tell you know there's apes in this and it's gonna be cool it's like snakes on a plane right you can't sell that movie if you don't right. say what the audience should expect but the music during that scene from you know the startle to the chase before you even see you know you see the sticks coming and so on when you first see that gorilla on the horse and he moves his mouth, oh my God, that's a gorilla on a horse. <laughs> and I don't care if you've seen apes running around doing things, throwing nets every which way but loose on TV for the previews, right there, it hits. To me, ultimately, there's so many great things, but the makeup is my favorite thing about it. And I've talked about that a few times already on the show. Nothing was reaching that level at that point. They didn't have a best makeup category for the Oscars prior to Planet of the Apes. They made one. I think Gregory Peck was head of the Academy at the time, and they lobbied him about this, and he created a category, and I think Cooper won the best makeup, and Ben Nye really worked on it. And you wouldn't have guys like Rick Baker doing the things that he did later on, which means you wouldn't have had Thriller. Mm. <laughs> Greg? High point. Mine is colored by nostalgia. I don't think anything. There are like maybe five pop culture moments in my personal history that just were burned into me. And one of them was sitting in front of my television watching Charlton Heston slowly ride up to this wrecked thing that, oh my God, it's the Statue of Liberty. I think I'm the only one in the room that really was shocked by the shock ending. It came as a complete 
surprise to me. And up until that point, I'd been kind of, you know, even 11, I had my little fanboy hat on saying, they shouldn't speak English. He shouldn't have been able to write English. <laughs> you know, that's just all fucked up. That's wrong. And then it's like, oh, no, it's not. Oh, my God. Nothing has matched that for me. Not Luke finding out about Darth Vader, nothing. That was like my first experience with the big shock reveal. And it just was, oh, holy man. So that's a high point. And in the years since, I keep going back to that one as the one that I like to see over and over again. It's layered. It's got lots of cool stuff going on. It's got Charlton Heston rage, which is like no other cinematic rage ever. Planet of the Apes and the Omega Man and Soylent Green, they're like my favorite science fiction movies from that era. And a lot of it is just the sheer Heston anger <laughs> that, you know, I'm so sick of you. I'm going to beat the shit out of you and shoot you, you know, and, <laughs> and that's, and the thing of it is his movies are always built in such a way that that's, well, yeah, that's the common sense reaction. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that it endures so much because it came out a day after 2001. Really? Mm. Yeah. Mm. April 2nd and April 3rd, 1968, respectively. And we all know what a classic 2001 is and how well-respected it is. But Planet of the Apes, there's a new Planet of the Apes movie coming out right now in the theater. So that's amazing that it's, that it's held on so long. And they both featured humans in ape costumes. <laughs> that's a strange absolutely point right. of coherence. Yeah. And both believably. <laughs> yeah, I think. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. I was actually thinking of putting that in my high point as whether or not, because the ape costumes were so well done, and because obviously Kubrick being insane genius about everything, meticulous about everything, which of those costumes that I thought were done better? And I, I can't. I actually can't tell either of them are better because they're both amazing. Yeah. I really thought about what my high point was going to be, and I'm actually going to repeat something that Greg said and say Heston. I think the casting of Charlton Heston is one of the most important things about the first movie because movies couldn't get made back then without star power. And Heston lobbied to get this movie made. He fought to get this movie made. Yeah, he was attached early on. It was the first thing that the studio needed. Oh, you got Charlton Heston attached? Fine, let's do this. If not for Charlton Heston, the movie wouldn't have gotten made. But I think it's casting that has only gotten better with time and context. Because you look at the legacy of Charlton Heston and you see him as this hero in epics like Ben-Hur where he's this square-jawed, clean-cut guy who's larger than life and gooder than good. Then you look at him in this movie and he's this bitter, misanthropic, jackass cynic who, like you said, goes into outer space because fuck humanity. He ends up defending a pair of liberal scientists who are under attack by a suppressive theocratic society led by an ape who is both the minister of science and chief defender of the faith. They're being gone after because one of them is advocating evolution and the other one is saying that we're not so different from the humans. And now put this into context of what we all think of Charlton Heston now with his later conservative icon Neanderthal politics. It's almost stronger seeing this sort of stuff this man is essentially the defendant in a mix between the Scopes Monkey Trial, the Dred Scott case, and the 1950s Red Scare. And it's coming from Charlton Heston, who's old Hollywood, Mr. Conservative. I mean, yeah, he still brings out the guns and shoots him some gorillas. <laughs> but he's the guy who bursts the bubble of an ignorant, suppressive, isolated society that isn't letting new ideas in. And I know we all think of him as Mr. Republican, but it isn't totally fair because Charlton Heston, he was a vocal supporter of the civil rights movement. So I could see a lot of the things in this script, which he was very proud of. He loved being a part of this movie. He didn't want to be in a sequel, but he was proud of Planet of the Apes. 
This again comes from my favorite era of Charlton Heston. Yeah, Ben-Hur is gorgeous and that's a really cool chariot race and oh my God, the scale. But 1970s bitter cynic Heston, that's my Heston. <laughs> I really think this is the first of a trilogy of movies that includes the Omega Man and Soylent Green. Right. So Charlton Heston, his role as Taylor, I think he makes the role stronger and the role made him a better actor. So Charlton Heston is my high point. And on that note, I want to thank the panelists who took the time to participate in the panel today. First, I want to thank, of course, our good friend Greg Hatcher, columnist with Comic Book Resources, Comics Should Be Good blog. Thanks for joining us, Greg. You're very welcome. It was fun. And the composer of our opening theme music, Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Glad to have you back, Todd. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. And finally, Casey Doran. Thank you for your rage, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Get your paws off of me. So <laughs> and on, on that, uh, I guess that's a, a bad touch moment. Uh, we'll catch you again on next month on Radio vs. the Martians. Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. Weapons, any guns? The best, but we won't need them. I'm glad to hear it. I want one anyway. <laughs> <laughs>